John 1 will be in 19 through 34. Here's what the Holy Spirit inspired John to write to us. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to them, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me. Because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we gather now to understand this Son of yours, Jesus, just a bit more today than we did before we came. Father, we've come to behold this Lamb of yours. And understand how it is that He has come and taken away the sin of the world. And I pray, Father, as I proclaim this message, that You would wash me with this truth so that I would be more alive in Christ than I was before I presented this sermon. And I pray that You'd do the same for my people here. That they would see the Lamb of God who was slain, fresh and anew, and that they would be emboldened from this truth and worship you all the more until you come again. And I pray this in the name of the Lamb. Amen. It was a night that they will never forget. They wouldn't forget it for all of their days. It was the night of the tenth plague. And I'm telling you, it was extreme. We read it in Scripture in Exodus chapter 12. And man, I'm telling you, when we read the Bible, we can be way too casual. And we're so far removed from the accounts of Scripture that sometimes we read them as if they're a novel, set it down and go to sleep, 
and not dwell on it anymore. And we don't take in the fullness of what happened. In Exodus chapter 7, we begin with these plagues that God throws down on Pharaoh and Egypt because they will not let God's people go. We see a plague, the first one, where the Nile River is turned into blood and everything in that river dies. Just imagine the stench of a bloody Nile River. The second plague was frogs. The third plague, gnats. The fourth plague, flies. These aren't house flies. And they didn't deal with them with fly swatters. They darkened the sky they were so thick. They were in every open pore and cavity in the body. They were in every jar and every room and every corner and every square inch of these people's existence. The fifth plague, all of the Egyptian livestock dies. Imagine the stench. The sixth plague, now the people have boils. Pharaoh's still defiant through it all. Seventh plague, we get the elements from the weather. We get hail. The eighth plague, locusts. We go to insects again. The ninth plague, darkness. We're not talking about darkness when you turn the lights off in the house. We're talking pitch black, suffocating darkness. And then we get to the tenth plague. And it was a night that these people would never forget. Moses says this, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Moses continues, Tell all the congregation of Israel that the tenth day of the month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. Your lamb shall be a male, and your lamb shall be a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And we know what happens from there. God says in verse 12 of Exodus 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. It's a night they never forgot because it happened. 
Lord swooped through, and everywhere he saw blood on the doorpost of that house, he passed over because the blood of the Lamb protected them and de- defined them as those of Israel and not those of Egypt. But those of Egypt, there was a crying out in the middle of the night like you've never heard before. It even went to the degree of striking livestock firstborn. And it was after that that the people were freed, freed from the bondage of being slaves in Egypt. And it all came about because of a lamb and some blood. So we come here to John chapter 1, verse 19, and we see that John the Baptist has now got a testimony to give. In the verse first 18 verses of this passage, we've looked at this God-man Jesus Christ, the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh. And last week we said the Word became flesh with a purpose. And that purpose was to die. Humans die. God became man to die in the place of all mankind that would believe in him because in Genesis 2.18 there's a death penalty placed on men. If you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And we said last week that Jesus was full of grace and truth. He's the word of God. He died on the cross in our place. There's the grace. Beautiful grace. But he also died on the cross. There's the truth. God was true to his word in Genesis 2.18. So Jesus is both grace and truth. And John here, the Baptist, is going to testify to this all the more. John 1, 1 through 18 sets up that Jesus Christ is in fact God himself, God with us. The word became flesh. And the whole rest of the book of John details one item after another proving that Jesus Christ is God. And the Word did become flesh. So here we go. The first one that we're going to look at this morning is found in in the text that we read right before this sermon began, starting in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Hey, who are you? Remember we saw in verse... uh, 6 six through 8 of chapter 1. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now we see that this witness is going to share his testimony. Witnesses and testimonies go together. And so John is going to witness here in this passage as to who the Christ is. And this is, as I've said in past, not John's opinion We'll see proof of this. This is God's designation and John reporting facts, not opinions about who this Christ is. So we see that Jews sent priests and Levites to inquire of John. When you think about this, just know this. These Jews are basically the religious authorities in Israel. These are the Pharisees. Okay? These are the authority figures. And they sent priests... To John the Baptist, priests are theological experts and gurus. They are well-versed in the Old Testament. They know it backwards and forwards. They are to inquire of John as to who he is. And also with these priests are some Levites. And these are aides to the priests who help the priests carry out the religious rituals in the temple. 
So these are men that are coming to John the Baptist. They're not clueless about God, Yahweh, and the Old Testament. They've memorized the book of Deuteronomy, perhaps. They know everything backwards and forwards about the Old Testament law, and they're coming to John to ask some questions. And I want you to hold in the balance that verse in John 1, 12. He came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. These are the people Jesus came to. These are the people of Christ, the Pharisees, the priests, and the Levites. They are Jesus' own, and they did not receive him. They knew about him. They had the testimonies of the Old Testament prophets, the book of the law, the wisdom writings, and they received him not, although they knew all the well who he was. And so they're questioning John the Baptist because John the Baptist is radical. John the Baptist is like nobody ever, ever experienced before. Here's Matthew 3, 7 through 10. This is perhaps why these, these priests and Levites are coming and asking John who he is, because he was saying things like this. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to him in his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. That's radical. Calling these guys broods of vipers. Telling them not to bank on their heritage all the way back to Father Abraham, because Jesus Christ, God himself, can raise up people, children of Abraham, from stones, from Gentiles. That's radical. It's also concerning to them that radical things like this are said. Listen to what was said about Jesus. Right after he raised Lazarus from the grave, we see this in John 11. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said... What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So the Pharisees send priests and Levites to John the Baptist because they're concerned about this stuff coming out of his mouth, and they want to know who in the world he is. And it's just like the Pharisees concerned about this Jesus that raised Lazarus from the dead, what are we going to do? Because people might actually believe in Christ. And then there might be an uprising, and the Romans may take our place from us. We can't have that. We want life as we know it, and we're just fine without this Christ business. Thank you very much. In fact, they were so tenacious, they wanted to kill Lazarus, who, who Jesus raised from the dead, to disprove Jesus' miracle. They will not believe the miracle of the resurrection of Lazarus. Again, he came to his own people, and his own people would not receive him. Wow. So John is giving us a witness here. He's bearing witness about who Christ is, but the Pharisees sends their, send their messengers to say, Who are you? And John is very certain about how he's going to respond to this inquiry. And let's look. If you look in your outline, we're going to see John now identify himself and give a witness regarding himself first. 
So we see that John identifies himself with three negative responses to the question, who are you? (laughs) Three negative responses. First of all, in verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Look at the three times that he is denying this. He confessed and he did not deny, but confessed three times. That's for emphasis. That is for certainty. I am not the Christ. Now he says this because as we've talked about here in the last three weeks and as well on Sunday nights, there were people who wrongly worshipped John the Baptist as the Messiah. And it happened all the way into the two hundred, the second, the third century, 200 A.D., Um, In Luke 3.15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. So this is a problem that the people of this day and age had as they encountered John the Baptist. They considered him to be the Christ. John is emphatic. I am not the Christ. And so then they asked him in verse 21, What then? Are you Elijah? Now remember who's asking the question. Priests and Levites, theological authorities, theological experts. They know well who Elijah was. They know well Malachi 4.15, last passage of the Old Testament. says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So these priests and Levites are expecting one to come like Elijah. So they asked John the Baptist, Are you the one? Elijah was a very, and still is, a very popular figure in the Jewish faith. Elijah didn't die. We know that Elijah was taken up in chariots of fire, right? Did not physically die. So they're expecting him, since he didn't die, to come again to take that passage literally. And I can tell you that even to this very day, when the Jews celebrate Passover in 2012, many, if not all, Jewish families leave a table, leave a chair at the table empty for Elijah. <laughs> they still, to this day, are waiting for Elijah. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. John says to this Elijah question, I am not Elijah. So they move on. They say, how about this? Are you the prophet? Now who is the prophet? Turn with me to Deuteronomy 18. This prophet figure in Deuteronomy 18 that Moses speaks of is a controversial figure even in our day and age right now. These priests and Levites know about this prophet because they know Deuteronomy backwards and forwards. This is the second giving of the law. That's what Deuteronomy means. They've memorized it so that they can keep every law to the letter. And Moses says this in Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb 
on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. Verse 18, I will raise up for him a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So here's this prophet, a second prophet, a prophet like Moses that's going to be raised up. And they are asking John the Baptist, are you him? Is that who you are? And John the Baptist says a one-word answer, no. Who is this prophet? Islam today says that this prophet is Muhammad. Christianity says this prophet is Jesus Christ. Luke, the writer of Acts, says this is Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Luke chapter 3. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, 22, starting in, let's start in verse 18. <clears throat> but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. Verse 22. Moses said, okay, Deuteronomy 18, 18. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Verbatim quote. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And so Christ is promised by God and is given by God and he is that prophet from Deuteronomy 18.18 18 that Moses spoke to. But the Pharisees, by way of the priests and the Levites, are inquiring as to whether or not John the Baptist is that prophet. And John the Baptist says, Oh no, I am not that prophet. So what we have to this point is John getting a question three times. Who are you? And every time it's no, no, no. I am not the Christ. I am not Elijah and I am not the prophet. And his witness and his testimony is about to turn and is about to point to who he is and who he is to represent. And so he answers no. He is a prophet. In fact, I've told you that John the Baptist is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. First prophet, I believe, was Adam. A prophet is one who speaks the word of God. Adam spoke the word of God to Eve. He told Eve, we should not eat of this tree. Don't do it. We know that she heard that message from him because she, in encountering the serpent, says we're not supposed to eat of that tree or we'll die. So that's the first prophet. We go through a long line of prophets, including Moses including Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Joel and all the way to Malachi. 
And then we get to John the Baptist. He is a prophet. He is speaking the word of God, and he is pointing people to the promised Messiah. He is the last of the great prophets. And he is the greatest prophet, Jesus says, because he's the prophet whose prophecy came true. And actually he saw it with his own eyes. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But Jesus is the ultimate prophet. Jesus is the prophet of Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. And Jesus says this in John 5.46, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. You could add in parentheses in Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. He wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So John is not the prophet. Jesus is the prophet. John has come as a messenger to point people to Jesus Christ. So now we go to John's purpose. If that's John's identity, we, we don't know exactly who he is yet, according to their inquiries, but we know who he's not. So now we go to his purpose, and this will tell us who he is. Finally, we get a positive answer from him in 22. So they said to them, to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So these priests and Levites, you can almost hear the exasperation. Who in the world are you? Will you tell us? We know who you're not. Who are you? And John quotes Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. Listen to this. this is, I'll, I'll read it for you. Isaiah writes, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, a highway. So John the Baptist is a road builder. <laughs> John the Baptist came to pave a way, a highway, that Jesus Christ would come down, and all those that would believe in him would go down this highway with Christ on a level plain. Without valleys. It goes on to say in Isaiah 40, without beasts and lions ripping and tearing. And so John the Baptist positively identifies himself as the one that Isaiah prophesied about in Isaiah 40. And he calls himself basically a road builder. Isaiah 35, 8 and 9, it says this, A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. All caps. The way of holiness and the unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Now I want to show you something. I want to circle back to what we talked about in John 1, 1 through 18, where we talked about Jesus himself was in fact God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. In John, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That word Lord in Isaiah 40 verse 3 is all caps. I know I've talked about this on Sunday nights. When you see all caps, L-O-R-D, in the Old Testament, that is a direct reference to the true name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh, God himself. 
And so John the Baptist is referring to, John, to Isaiah 43 where there's this voice in the wilderness that's going to prepare the way for Yahweh. And John the Baptist says in John chapter 1, I am that voice and I am pointing you to prepare you for Yahweh, God himself. So here we see again, we're going to see it throughout everything that we look at in the book of John. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. The Word was God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh. God with us. And so we, when people deny the deity of Christ, it's not just John 1, 1, where people say that's been mistranslated. Even here, in verse, uh, later on in chapter 1, verse 22, 23, we see Jesus referred to as God himself in the flesh. So the deity of Christ is laced throughout the book of John. And we see that John the Baptist is a voice in the wilderness, and Jesus Christ is the word that that voice proclaims. And John's message is this, make straight the way of the Lord. In other words, we are to prepare our hearts for this Lord that's coming. And you could really tie into some other great scriptures for this. For, for instance, how about beautiful are the feet that bring the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist had the most beautiful feet because he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So now we move on. We see that John is the one who is to make straight the way of the Lord. He's a road builder. We also see that John's purpose was to baptize with water in verse 24. Now they'd been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So what is this baptism with water all about? Why was John the Baptist on earth prior to Jesus coming baptizing people with water well there's five truths about this baptism let me run through them quickly number one this baptism was designed by God to show the Israelites that they were outside of the covenant of God and they needed to be brought back in this is a number two a ceremonial washing and the Israelites knew all about ceremonial washing and how they had to wash themselves and purify themselves. And John the Baptist is saying, you are ceremonially unclean. And you need to be dipped in water and washed free of the sin so that you can be brought back into the covenant of God. Number three, this was a public expression that the Israelites were to go through. These, this was done in the Jordan River with many people around. It's a public expression that I repent of my sins. I am unclean. I am outside of the covenant of God, and I need to be restored to him. Therefore, I'm going to be washed in this water in the Jordan River. It's ceremonially an expression of repentance. And then number four, this baptism was a preparatory act for the Messiah's coming. It prepares their hearts to receive Christ. John 1.12 says, For those who received him and believed in his name, this baptism is to call them to the fact that they need forgiveness. And then lastly, there's a truth about this baptism that we need to understand as well. And that's that it didn't accomplish what Jesus' baptism will accomplish. So it was limited 
in scope. Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 5, Paul passed through, and he came and found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not heard, even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. And upon hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. So we see there that John's baptism was not sufficient. It was all a pointer to point people to their need for Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. But it didn't fully cleanse them. Only the blood of the Lamb cleansed people from their sins. And so I'm going to ask you here this morning as we pause, because now we're going to go to who John witnesses about regarding Jesus. And I want to ask you this. you would agree with me that God still uses people to prepare the way for Jesus Christ in the lives of other people. Would you not? Can you recall right now in your life someone that was John the Baptist-like who brought to you the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who prepared you to set your eyes on the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? There is a John the Baptist figure in all of our lives. Someone was used by God to show us this lamb. And if you believe this morning, and you believe in this lamb, I would encourage you right now, just under your breath, Lord, thank you for that person that you used to prepare me for the way of the Lord. And then I'm going to ask you, do you as a born-again believer this morning see yourself called to act out what John the Baptist did in the lives of people that you live with, work with, shop with. There is a role for us that is to image John the Baptist in pointing people away from us and to the Christ. And they're desperate for Jesus Christ. They are unclean. They need Him badly, whether they know it or not. And we need to be people who walk around in this world that we live in. Sometimes we need to go to Africa and do it. Sometimes we need to go down to HEB and do it. But we need to go and say to people, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Are you engaged in that calling? Somebody came to you. You must go to somebody, and God will be glorified in both. And I'm going to just tell you, I'm going to warn you, that this, this is not reserved for the professionals. This is not the work of pastors. I'm here standing before you today, and I have every Sunday saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But I'm not unique in that. You're called to do that with me. Missionaries go. It's not a missionary calling to say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You are a missionary in HEB tomorrow morning, 10 o'clock. Do you embrace that? Do you see that for what it really is? So I challenge 
you and I challenge me, let's be aggressive. John the Baptist was so aggressive. I'm not saying let's go to H-E-B and scream and wear camel's hair and eat locusts. Okay? But let's be aggressive and point people to the Lamb of God. Because the times are short and He's coming again. So now let's look next at Jesus and His identity and who John says He is. I've got three points there for you under that section. Verse 29, The next day He saw Jesus coming toward Him, and He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This concept, this term, the Lamb of God, is only used in the book of John. I don't know if you knew that. It's not used in the other Gospels. You find... Uh, indirectly it's used in the book of Revelation, which was written by the Apostle John as well. So the Lamb of God is unique to John, and this, dear church, is exactly why John the Baptist was sent. When he says, Behold the Lamb of God, that is the moment, the pinnacle moment, when God direct, that God directed him to. God started talking about him in Isaiah 43, Malachi 4.15, and now the moment comes where John encounters Jesus Christ and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the greatest news. There's no newspaper headline that could capture this fully. There's no newspaper that could hold the news of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And John says, this is he of whom I said, after me comes one who ranks before me, because he was before me. Remember? John was born first. John's ministry began first. John inaugurated Jesus' ministry when he baptized him. So how could Jesus come before him? Well, Jesus comes before him because the Word was with God and the Word was God. And all things were created through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus is supreme to John the Baptist. He was before him even though physically he was after him. This is the first time that John and Jesus encounter one another outside of their mother's womb. And it's the only time that these two will be in, in contact with one another. And so John goes on to say, first of all, we see that he identifies him as the Lamb of God. Secondly, he's the one on whom the Spirit descends and remains. Verse 31, I myself did not know him. So John's acknowledging, I didn't know who Jesus was. I just knew that something's going to happen and he's going to be identified to me and then I'll point you to him. And he says, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. This is right after he's baptized Jesus. And on and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me, God the Father, to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. So God is the one that identifies Jesus here to John. And John's merely the messenger saying, God told me, when the Spirit descends and stays, that's the Lamb of God. It's not my opinion, it's what God told me. So John had no specific knowledge of who Jesus was. And Jesus is the Lamb of God who the Spirit descends on and remains. Just a quick aside, I'm looking at the passage here. 
Notice that he says, um, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So John's message was to the people of God, the Israelites, not the world at large, but he came to talk to the Israelites. God arranges it where the Israelites, through the priests and the Levites, come to John to inquire as to who he is. And John's continually pointing them away from him to the Christ, hoping that they will abandon their sacrificial law system and see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's beginning to to build that concept. And really what he's working towards is putting the priests out of business. We'll see that here in a second. I'll tease you with that and hold it for a second. So then also thirdly, we see that John identifies Jesus as the Son of God. Look down at the very last verse of our passage today, verse 34. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John tells us Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's the one whom the Spirit descends on and remains. And he's the Son of God, just like John 1.14 says. He's the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so then John moves to the purpose for which this Lamb of God came. The Lamb came to take away our sin. Period. The Word became flesh so that the Word could die, and those that believe in that substitutionary death on the cross will be relieved of all their sins. The world has a huge problem. Still does to this day. But at this time, the world had a massive problem. There was a death sentence placed on the world. If you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And when Adam ate of that tree, we ate of that tree because Adam is our father, our forefather. He came before us. We come from him. And through one man, sin entered into all the world, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all desperate for this relief from sin. And so there's this problem, and there's not one man suitable to pay for all the sins of mankind. There's not one at this point. And so the Word became flesh, became a man, because there needed to be a suitable substitute for those who have sinned. And He came to die on the cross, and when He dies on this cross, He's basically putting the priests out of business. Kenneth read for us this morning Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. And we see there that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ did something that all the other sacrifices couldn't do. Let me just read you some highlights from that passage. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Do you believe that? You see it in the Old Testament because over and over and over, lambs are slain and their blood is sprinkled to atone for the sins of the people. In fact, this passage says, uh, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So do you have a right picture of this? You see these priests, their, their job is to slaughter animals over and over and over. Ceremonially get washed up, slaughter the lamb, take the blood, sprinkle it on the altar, over and over, day after day, year after year. These are the people that have come and inquired to John, who are you? 
And here in Hebrews, we see that Jesus does away with the first sacrifice in order to establish the second. And by that, we will be, have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So here's right here on the cross, that's when animal sacrifice stopped in the Jewish faith. There's no more sacrifice for animals that will atone for sin. All those sacrifices, all those lambs, that lamb in Exodus 12 where they sprinkled the blood on the doorpost pointed to this lamb, Jesus Christ. The lamb who takes away the sins of the world. God passes over the doorposts, the houses with the doorposts with the blood of the lamb in the Old Testament. God passes over you and me if the blood of Jesus is on us in our faith and belief and trust that he died in our place on the cross once and for all. So Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, not some lamb of some family that's firstborn and a male one year old without blemish. Jesus Christ is the firstborn Son of God without blemish. And he is the once and for all sacrifice for all sin. So that's the good news that John the Baptist was ordained to come and proclaim. And guess what? As I've said already, you and I are called to be like John the Baptist and to point people to this lamb and this cross so that they might believe as well and give glory to their Father in heaven for saving them from their sins. So John the Baptist tells us that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's the Son of God. And he is to take away the sins of the world. And then he finally tells us that this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to speak to this issue in detail tonight. We're going to look at John's baptism. We're going to look at Jesus' baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then we're going to look at baptism that you and I do here these days. And we're going to say, how do these three baptisms work together? What's going on in these three baptisms? Because they're different. But suffice it to say for now that Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit, which means he gives us the Holy Spirit. He immerses us. He pours the Holy Spirit into us. And the Holy Spirit gives us new life. Just like the Spirit in Genesis 1-2 was hovering over the depths and the darkness. And it gave life. God said, let there be light. And the Spirit was present when that was happening. Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit, so that we can have new life in Him dwelling within us. So that's what baptism in the Spirit looks like. Come tonight for more details on that. So lastly, we see that John has fully accomplished his mission. Up to this point, John didn't know who Jesus was, but in faith he pointed people to the coming Messiah, and he built a road that the Messiah could come down. But now that he has seen the Spirit descend on him and remain, he continues to say from this point forward, not me, him. I must decrease. He must increase. I am not the Christ. He is. Continually. Over and over. So we see that John's mission is accomplished. And now we're going to watch throughout the rest of John. John the Baptist fades out of the periphery, out of even our peripheral vision. Every now and then we get a glimpse of him, but he's going to fade, and the rest of the book is going to be about the one who John testified about, Jesus Christ, 
the Lamb of God. So now, in closing, has there been a time in your life when you faced the stark reality of your sin? Have you, have you been confronted and understood fully the degree of your sin and the God against whom that sin was committed? If you have, that is a blessing from God. That's called conviction. And God in His grace has shown you where you're wrong and where you need a sacrifice to be made in your place. If you've had that confrontation and you've embraced the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, I want to say to you this morning, I want you to revel in the truth that you are a forgiven person, freed from the bondage of sin, free from Egypt like the Israelites were freed from Egypt in the Passover. And I hope that you can live life daily worshiping God in this forgiven state because you are you're a saint. You're a child of God. You still sometimes sin, but you're forgiven. You were a sinner saved by grace, and now you still struggle with sin, but you're forgiven. Would you bask in that? Would you rejoice in the truth that God did that for you? And he did it by confronting you, maybe through a John the Baptist-like person in your life? If you've not had this confrontation, if, you, if you've not faced up and said, man, I am a sinner and I have sinned against a holy God, the God who made me, I pray this morning that you will fully embrace the Lamb of God who was provided to take away your sins. And this is the only way you can be right with God. There's no other way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John the Baptist came to prepare the way of the Lord. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So embrace the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God this morning. Because he is here to take away your sins if you will believe in him. And let's pray. Father, we acknowledge as a people this morning that we have fallen short of your glory. We acknowledge that we need to be delivered, we need to be rescued from the wrong that we've committed and the sin that we've done against you. And Lord, we see here clearly in Scripture that the only solution is your Son, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the Word who became flesh. For those of us this morning, Father, that believe, we say thank you for revealing Him to us. Thank you for sending someone to prepare the way for Jesus Christ in our life. Father, for those in this room that do not yet believe in Jesus Christ, who have not been given the right to be called your child, I pray that they would stand convicted this morning and profess you as Lord and Savior once and for all. Father, we live in a dark world, a dying world, that needs this news. I pray that you would cause us to take it from here, wherever we go, and point people to this Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And I pray that we'd do it for your glory and for their eternal benefit. And I pray this in the name of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen.